0: This is episode number 381 with Dr. Oscar Serilak. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Me Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week I'll be getting up close and personal with thoughts leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you use Instagram for your business like I do, you are going to love Tailwind. It's the social media scheduling tool that gets real results without the overwhelm in less time. Tailwind's Instagram planning app provides all you need to plan, schedule, and auto-post for the perfect Insta feed. It has tools like 9Grid Preview, Carousel Post Scheduling, Instagram Story Post Scheduling, and Insights to see what's working and what's not. It's way more than a scheduler. It's an Instagram Smart Assistant, complete with smart features that help you take the guesswork out of growing your brand. I love their hashtag finder, which intelligently suggests the perfect mix of hashtags to grow your reach. And Smart Schedule automatically suggests the best times to post. How cool is that? And if Pinterest is more your thing, Tailwind Create is a brand new tool that allows you to create beautiful pins faster than ever before. You can go from idea to pin in just 30 seconds. Every image is unique and made just for you. You can generate, personalize, and fine-tune pins to drive traffic to your content. And Pinterest scheduling with Tailwind helps you grow your business with more traffic. To get $30 off your Tailwind subscription, head to tailwindapp.com forward slash Melissa today. Dr. Oscar Serilak graduated with a medical degree from the Auckland School of Medicine in New Zealand in 1996. He received his fellowship of family medicine and general practice in 2008 and is currently completing a fellowship in nutritional and environmental medicine. He is the owner and principal doctor at the Mullumbimby Integrative Medical Centre based in Northern New South Wales, Australia, which he has been running since 2011. He is also the author of the bestseller, The Postnatal Depletion Cure and has garnered praise from high profile fans like Gwyneth Paltrow, Penelope Cruz and Dr. Libby Weaver. And in this episode, we chat about what inspired him to help women in their postnatal phase, what every woman needs to know about postnatal depletion and what makes it different from postnatal depression why we need to pamper, guard and treat new mamas like royalty and how to set crystal clear boundaries around your own postpartum period to set you up for success. We also chat about the importance of understanding what your body and your baby need at different stages and how this is essential to prevent postnatal depletion, the crucial role of collaboration and support in caring for new mamas. How to create a postnatal master plan to set yourself up for success in trimester four. The essential supplements you need to be taking during pregnancy in order to prepare your body and your baby for labor. Why it's imperative for mothers to go through nervous system practices to work on their responses towards stress. And we talk about the best places that you can start for that. And why sleep should be treated as medicine and not a luxury for mums and his genius strategies to get more of it. Plus, so much more. This episode is for everyone. You're going to get so much out of it. I was so excited to interview him. And for everything that Oscar and I mentioned in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 381. And now without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Dr. Oscar Celerat. Oscar, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: Thanks, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Breakfast, what did I have for breakfast this morning? I usually have a smoothie. So in the smoothie, I usually have a protein powder called Brain Sustain. It's uh, Dr. Pearl, might protein powder, cacao. I might put a tablespoon of cacao powder in that two tablespoons of chia seeds, probably a tablespoon of cacao butter just to get some sort of fat on board for the morning, a few mushrooms, so the I think sort of cordyceps type mushrooms just for immunity and then I'm having a real kind of love affair with organic sour cherries at the moment so I get those frozen, put them in the blender and then just a few sort of blueberries and, and that's kind of my breakfast and it sees me good till mid morning usually.
0: Mmm, sounds delicious. Beautiful. Now, I first heard about you and your work and your incredible book, The Postnatal Depletion Cure, from one of my friends. She's actually a hairdresser, and she was blow drying my hair one day, and she said, "Have you heard of Dr. Oscar Cellaras?" And I was like, "No," and she told me all about you and your work you actually helped her get pregnant and you also helped her thrive after birth. And up until that moment, I had never heard of the term postnatal depletion. I'd never heard of it. And I was so fascinated. And I, like most people, know many women who have experienced postnatal depression. And I'm sure many people listening to this right now will know someone or maybe they themselves have experienced it. So firstly, can you tell us how you got into your work and then what is postnatal depletion and how is that different to postnatal depression?
1: Yeah, great question. So I started off life really just as an emergency department doctor. And once I sort of started you know, wanting to have a family, I realized that, that probably wasn't the most ideal type of work with shift work, those kind of things. So I did my family medicine training to, to become a GP, sort of two years of study. and then I, But I've always been very interested in functional medicine, So this idea of you know, looking at our environment, looking at the foods that we eat, you know, good quality sleep, you know, basically our, body, our bodies being in harmony. And so I started doing five years of study in sort of functional medicine, and that just happened to coincide at the same time of starting a family and very much like you are saying i was seeing so many mothers both in my clinic and then just sort of friends around me and then you know with my own partner and just who were seemed to be very healthy before children seemed to have quite a lot of support and felt quite good you know usually during most of the pregnancy and then kind of got sent into a tailspin after the birth of their child and and I started to see a real sort of pattern emerging with just by observation, I suppose. And and also because I was studying functional medicine, I was really seeing that there were unique things going on for mothers that were either just perhaps more exaggerated than in, in the rest of the population or were just happening in mothers and not in other people. And and I really thought there would be a body of literature and research and around these kind of things. And I spent months and months, you know, trawling the internet and various medical websites and search engines. And you know, there's actually, I mean, at that stage, there was very little research on the postpartum, postnatal phase. And all the research was around psychological and mental health issues. Now, when you see a pattern, you kind of go, well, there's actually something going on biologically, physically, emotionally and so I really started just researching whatever I could find and I suppose the interesting thing for me with with a lot of the research that I was doing I kept on coming back to postpartum practices from ancient cultures and at first I was finding that a bit annoying going no, no, I actually want to find the, the medical stuff and but I realized that these you know these old cultures that we've all come from, understood that there was a a time of vulnerability that mothers can have postnatally. And so they had very elaborate, often quite different but thematically very similar ways of making sure that the mothers didn't get into this tailspin and were able to sort of fully recover and get back into their into their sort of lives. And so and I came up with the term postnatal depletion a little bit by accident, just I had had a mother in my one of my consults who had quite a thick accent and, and she asked me whether she she thought she might have postnatal depression. I missed her depletion. And then I kind of realised oh, actually she meant depression, but that really kind of got me thinking, going, well, is there I mean the mothers that I'm seeing, they just look depleted. And that sort of set me on my journey of, of focus of just going, well, mothers are obviously not maidens, women who haven't had children, and they're certainly not men. But the medical world pretty much treats them like that for whatever issues they might be having in terms of fatigue, mental health issues, and their options are all kind of sort of cookie cutter, general population type things, as opposed to these specific postnatal treatments or therapies. And I I suppose, in a nutshell, what's really fascinating for me, we can dig down into this, but one of the things that can happen postnatally is this idea of neuroinflammation. And neuroinflammation is where very tiny parts of the brain become too electrical and they literally cause other parts of the brain to become too hot or too cold electrically. And they basically, co- that is the mechanism that causes almost all of the postnatal issues that we know about. Fatigue, anxiety, depression, OCD are all neuroinflammatory nature they're very unique in terms of their fingerprint postnatally and when you look at electrical scans of of mothers with emotional issues they look totally different to men and maidens with the same kind of issues and so there's a totally different sort of landscape that occurs postnatally and it's not understood it's not talked about you know i know a lot of professional people who are really in, in the industry of mother care who aren't aware of this And they call it grey literature, which is literature in the biomedical sciences that hasn't quite come into medicine or mainstream medicine yet. And it's a very highly, still very good quality evidence, but just doctors aren't reading these kind of things. And and so for me, the term postnatal depletion really represents. If you can imagine neuroinflammation as a spectrum, and on the sort of lighter to moderate end, you've got depletion, and then on the more severe end, you've got anxiety and depression. Also being aware that the medical industry has very you know, finite definitions of what these things are as well so to have postpartum depression you have to have symptoms starting within four weeks of the birth of the child and have to be diagnosed in the first six months. If it isn't it's not postnatal depression it's just depression and even though 100% is going to be neuroinflammatory in nature. Whereas, you know, most men and maidens, they're, when they're experiencing depression and anxiety, most of the time is not going to be neuroinflammatory in nature. Some, sometimes it will be for other mechanisms. And there was a landmark study that came out of Australia, actually, in 2014, published in the BMJ, that showed the peak incidence of depression was four to five years after the birth of the child. But they had to call it depression postnatally. They couldn't call it postnatal depression. And when you see research like that, you kind of you know, understand that there is an accumulation of issues that occur, and the medical world is really missing what's going on because you're just another person after six months after the birth of your child. And I think we you know we need to really expand the idea of postnatal. And we all mothers know that they're permanently changed from their Process and journey of becoming a mother. It's not like oh, well, I go back to my maiden self straight after the birth of my child. No, you're forever changed, and 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 they understand the biological mechanisms of what's going on there. And it's, it's pretty fascinating if we have time to talk about those things. And I've had so many mothers say to me, "Look, I'm not depressed. I'm just knackered, and I can't think properly." And when you hear that dozens and dozens of times, and they've been given a label of depression because there's no other box to put these mothers into. This is you know essentially what we're dealing with as a as a society of just going, well, you either have depression or you don't. Otherwise you're just struggling and tired. And isn't every mother struggling and tired and have baby brain and lots of jokes around the forgetful mother and no, I, I don't buy that. I don't think it's I think it's very common that mothers are having these issues unfortunately, but it's it's not normal to have these neuroinflammatory issues of of fatigue and depletion and depression and anxiety postnatally. So yeah, that's kind of a brief summary of how I kind of got into this and it's it's and what's really fascinating is that the research just in the last few years has really started to mount. So it's just when I first started getting into this, it was relatively slim pickings. But the research was just going, you know, there's, there's this neuroinflammatory landscape that mothers have. It's profound. We need more research. And now that research is really starting to, you know, there's, there's just more happening in the in the in the med- in the medical spaces. So for me, it's really exciting to understand mechanisms, treatments, what we can kind of do, and also just the acknowledgement because it, I think all healing has to start with acknowledging someone's journey and often there can be trauma with that journey as well there can be physical birth trauma emotional birth trauma there can be medical trauma there's lots of mothers who've been I think very harshly dealt with by the medical system there can be social trauma in terms of lack of support and just lack of education as well and mothers having no idea what has hit them in that time sort of postnatal, And it doesn't always happen straight away. Sometimes it can happen in that you know, six to 12 months after the birth of the child where a mother really feels she starts to become derailed and she can be feeling quite good in that first period. And there are different reasons for that as well. But it's, it's a fascinating topic. I think there's a lot to sort of explore there and, and, and it's relevant to everyone. Now, now my, my joke is that, Mother research, mother care is only relevant for people who have have belly buttons. We all have a mother. We all know mothers and they're such a central part of our families and our societies and and culture that we really do them a a disservice by not understanding their uniqueness and then also not giving them the support that they need. I mean, I've yet to see a mother who has suffered from too much postnatal support almost every mother that i see who's having issues has suffered from too little postnatal support.
0: Mhm. That's a really good point. One of my best girlfriends, she recently had a baby, so she's probably about 10 weeks old now, and we set her up with a 40-day meal train. So every day she had organic nourishing meals delivered to her door. And she had a cleaner come each week. And I checked in with her about a week into it. And I said, how are you going? How do you feel? And she goes, Melissa, I feel like I'm on a holiday. She goes, my husband brings me breakfast in bed every morning. I have beautiful meals delivered to my door every day. I have a cleaner. She goes, I've just been allowed the space to just, and she has a six-year-old as well, to just be with the newborn and obviously her six-year-old as well. And she said, I didn't have this the first time around. I had zero support the first time around. And now she's got all of this support. And she just said, it was amazing. And she's thriving. She is glowing. She is just thriving so much. And she said, every woman needs this. And she's made it her mission. She said, if I find out any woman, even if I don't know them, if I find out any woman in my neighborhood, in my community is pregnant, she goes, I'm dropping them food. And, you know, most days she'll send me a message and she said, Oh, I'm just making some goodies for a new mother. And I'm like, Oh, who is it? And she goes, Oh, just a mother from school. I've never met her before. And so this has really inspired her to give back in that way. And it's so beautiful. And I, at the time of recording this, am 21 weeks pregnant. And I have thought about my postpartum period as well. I've already spoken to my family and my friends about it. I've got the support there. I've already had these discussions. I'm going to have a meal train. I'm going to get a cleaner. I'm going to do those things as well and just really set myself up for success so that I can just do what we're meant to do in that period, which is lay in bed and breastfeed and nourish ourselves and just rest and recuperate after the marathon that we have just been through. So I want to hear from you, what are some of the things that we can do today, whether we're not even thinking about being pregnant or whether we are pregnant or whether we're just about to give birth or even if we have given birth, what are some things that we can do to really stop ourselves from experiencing this postnatal depletion?
1: You know that's a beautiful story, and thanks for sharing that. And and for me, the solution to mother care is not necessarily doctors being well versed in this. It's older mothers with experience, like your friend, who is who are supporting new mothers with deep support and non-judgment, which is, I think, really sort of fundamental. And you know, I think it always starts, like I say, with acknowledgement. We have to understand that. You just can't tag motherhood onto an already busy life, which most of us do. Research shows that the average couple spends more time researching the purchasing of a new car than they do of the postnatal period. And so what I see every day in my clinic is people have good prenatal care, antenatal classes, a good birth plan, and then essentially from the postnatal, they're just winging it. And that may not be their kind of official statement, but that's ex- essentially what they're doing. We'll just we'll just work it out as we go along because the birth is is kind of the finish line, and I think we need to reframe that the birth is actually the starting line. You know, the pregnancy is almost like a warm up to parenthood, and if if we can understand that mothers are unique, now mothers have the most important job out there. You can't convince me otherwise and that's teaching a newborn human how to love and that even as a father I I can teach my kids how aspects of love but that fundamental initial acquisition is through the mother and so your friend in that baby bubble full of oxytocin she's really able to bond with that child and I really love this idea of co-regulation which is this always happens you know our nervous system co-regulates with another person's nervous system if someone's being a bit aggressive, we kind of feel the vibe. If someone's being really funny, we kind of feel a bit funny ourselves. The most profound example of that is with a mother and a newborn child. So if the mother is feeling good and your friend is obviously feeling super supported, there are actually some old cultures that say that a new mother should feel like royalty. If she doesn't, and this is from the Pacific Islands. I think it's Samoa where they have this as their the mother's not feeling like royalty everyone's failing (laughs) and and in our 21st century culture that it almost seems extravagant to have that level of oh but I can do it I can do it sure a mother can do it but it's I think paramount where she is allowed not to do it and I think a big part of it is she needs to be allowed in that baby bubble for as long as possible and not have to be instituting things as well. So I really encourage you know, fathers and other primary caregivers to be the guardians who are instituting the postnatal plan, the food train, the, the cleaning services. You know, we, we have a saying in our clinic, no visitors, only staff. So if anyone's coming over, they've got jobs to do. They're, they're, and, and again, it's not just up to the partner to be doing all those extra jobs. You know, they can, And things should be ha- ideally happening without the mother being too involved. Because again, if you're going, oh, we've got all these plates here from people who have brought over food, I don't know who they go back to. You know, you shouldn't be burdened with anything like that. You're just in the baby bubble for that time. And I think that is a fantastic investment moving forward. Because I mean, let's sort of backtrack a little bit. So you're 21 weeks pregnant at the moment. So, so th- this is usually the, the second trimester is where mothers are feeling often really good. The first trimester, It can often be a lot of morning sickness and but let's just walk through what's happening during pregnancy, what's happening in the postnatal period, how it leads to neuroinflammation, and then we can kind of backtrack to your question about then, well, what do you do to sort of support that? You kind of have to understand a little bit of the anatomy first before so you know pregnancy is really a fascinating, quite magical time, really. The placenta, most people think of the placenta as a fancy filter but it's way more than that. I mean, its main job is actually as a hormone factory. Researchers call it an endocrine tsunami, that the amounts of hormones that get produced by the placenta to essentially manipulate the mother's body and her brain. The placenta's got a really nifty trick where it reaches into a tiny part of the brain called the PVN, switches off her stress response system, and starts to upgrade her brain. And the time of most brain growth outside of when you're actually a fetus inside your own mother is not during adolescence, it's during pregnancy. I mean, there's a lot of brain growth during adolescence, but pregnancy, a radiologist can can look at a scan of a mother's brain and and tell whether she's had a full-term pregnancy or not. And there's a huge remodeling that occurs in in a mother's brain. Parts of the brain that get the biggest upgrades include olfactory bulbs. That's taste and smell, and that explains a lot of the odd morning sickness, the badly named morning sickness, and aversions and cravings. I mean, this part of the brain is getting a major work over, and it makes sense. I mean, a mother has to be so critical about what she eats and her smell. I I had a client recently say that her husband was joking that she's had a bionic nose installed during pregnancy, and I I, I love that. It's like, it's exactly what's going on. Other parts of the brain that get big upgrades, social reasoning, facial recognition, interestingly, the emotional quotient, EQ part of the brain gets a big upgrade and also IQ gets a, a, a small upgrade in terms of so mothers are actually smarter than, maiden, than their maiden selves. And then there are parts of the brain that get upgraded that we're not even too sure about yet. So it's a, it's a pretty cool process and one of the critical things that happens when the baby is delivered is that the placenta is also delivered. And so you lose your hormone factoring. Mothers go into a, into a really low hormonal state. I know the baby blues that occur in 80 to 90% of it mothers three days postpartum is low estrogen, but no, it's a low hormonal state. Estrogen, progesterone, cortisol all go down very low. And so there's a hormonal gap that can last for weeks and weeks. Mother nature and her wisdom fills that hormonal gap with oxytocin and with prolactin. So prolactin is obviously prolactation. Breastfeeding oxytocin is the hormone, not only of childbirth, but also of intimacy, of trust, safety and skin to skin contact. And another neat little thing that the placenta does, it installs millions of oxytocin receptors in between the emotional response center of the brain called the amygdala and the hormonal response center of the brain called the hypothalamus so when the placenta is delivered a mother has to re-engage her stress response system again but that stress response system now goes from the previous me to this oxytocin infused we are we okay are we safe Many mothers describe a really heart-opening experience that occurs postnatally. It can be very confusing if you don't know what's going on and it can be a real time of fragility, vulnerability. In so many mothers that you talk to, they, they can't watch the news anymore, they're crying at commercials, things that they were, didn't realise they were tolerating suddenly become intolerable. You know, the, the barking dog of the neighbours energy from the in-laws, you know, all these kind of things that they can go so much deeper. I think that's a superpower to, be able to literally feel in we is profound. I think it's what the world needs everywhere, not just thinking in me, is am I going to get anything out of this? And mothers literally care more about others than they do about themselves. So whilst it's a superpower, it's definitely has a downside if your hormones can't come back online. So, again, oxytocin, prolactin. So if there's anything that causes shock to the mother, birth trauma, things not quite going to, to plan, and maybe the baby's had to go to special care, those kind of things, you know, those types of shocks are really going to dampen down oxytocin and prolactin potentially as well. If anything, you know, once a mother comes home and then there's severe stress or negative energy that can really affect that as well. And so I think part of what we need to be doing is creating a haven, just as you have beautifully described with your friend, that she feels super taken care of. And so her oxytocin and prolactin will be maxing out. And the reason why that's important is that that, that again, the PVN that we talked about where the placenta is kind of controlling the stress response system is a vulnerability that's left there. You know, and that's where the neuroinflammation starts. I and mean, the PVN's the size of a large pinhead, it's tiny. But that if that becomes too electrical, essentially all the issues that we know about anxiety, depression, fatigue, OCD, derive from that part of the brain. So if we can get oxytocin and prolactin on board, fixing the neuroinflammation or fixing the potential for neuroinflammation, then a mother has got much smoother sailing moving forward. And so she will need some sort of catastrophe to get into neuroinflammation, such as prolonged sleep deprivation or physical illness, those kind of things. And I think the vulnerability can stay there for years, but that initial healing in that first six weeks is so important. And then a lot of cultures have this fourth trimester or the 100 days where it's just i mean if you're in china traditional china if they see a a newborn out with their mother they will kind of shoo you back into the house because it's like you shouldn't be out here whereas in our culture we have this badge of honor of mothers getting back out there getting back to their maiden way of living the super mom which is a super harmful stereotype the mother who can do it all with no help oh my god if i could shoot that stereotype because that's never been done before and that's not biologically what it's about. And so, you know, my joke to clients is that the super is a bit like not wearing your seatbelt in your car and going, well, oh, look at me, you know, I, I, how smart am I? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe you can do it. And, and I'm certainly not, you know, I'm very pro-feminist, but I'm very, my sort of feministic views are very matrix-centric, a so mother in the middle.
0: But there's nothing wrong with... Getting support. You know, if you look back to when we were in tribes and we lived that way, it was the entire tribe that raised that child. It takes a village, that saying, it takes a village, and there's no shame and there should be no guilt. And I have zero, I've got a list of things that I'm doing to set myself up the meal train, the cleaner. I'm going to get groceries delivered. If you've got other children, getting other parents to do school drop off and pick up and like you said anyone that comes to your house you get you ask them you know i had another friend who had a list on the front door and said you're so welcome to come in please pick one of these tasks that you will do and it says unstack the dishwasher stack the dishwasher vacuum mop put a load of washing on fold a load of washing and she had this list on her front door and she said please pick one of these that you will do whilst you're here and there's nothing wrong with that and the thing is being a woman myself going and dropping over food to one of my best friends who's just recently had this baby filled me up so much i want everyone wants to support and help we don't need bunches of flowers we don't need to consume more toys and teddy bears and things to gift this child. What the mother really needs is a delicious, nourishing, organic meal prepared for her and the dishes done and the vacuuming done. And there's absolutely no shame. People want to help. They want to support and men too. My husband made a meal for them and took it over. He wanted to do that. Everyone wants to help and wants to support. So gift them that opportunity to do it. Gift that to them and tell people what to do. There's no shame in asking for support and putting your hand up. It is the biggest marathon of your life that you've just been through. And there's just no shame. I can't stress it enough. Just we need to support.
1: Yeah, I really hope you share that with your listeners because that's fantastic for me to hear that being so proactive. I mean, that's what it's about. And And again, there is a culture of shame or you should be able to do it yourself. And there's also this backbone of the mother wound, which is an intergenerational subconscious wounding in society where older mothers who weren't supported subconsciously pass on to to younger mothers, why should you get support? I wasn't supported. I wasn't allowed to let my light shine. And again, it's not out of any maliciousness. It's it's so deep that, that these older mothers can't, Literally see this, and, and and this is part of where that cultural idea that you know, the mother who can do it all has stemmed from. And you know there is no shame. I think it's actually a biological imperative that a mother has enough support, uh, not an option uh, ideally. And you know, the two worst things for a mother who are trying to recover. So just to sort of touch back on the question you asked earlier, one is overwhelm, and overwhelm is a real phenomenon. And, again, you've got this upgraded brain, all these receptors, new software, new hardware installed, overwhelm in your inflammation, is literally like the spinning circle on your computer. You know, and the baby brain, the fatigue, one plus one equals two, I think it does, it used to, what was the question again? You know, all these kind of mental traps that mothers get into. So that so anything we can do to avoid overwhelm is really important. So this is where not having tasks, not having to look after Three kids plus a newborn baby, not having to just be 24 7. And it's not, ideally, it's not up for the mother to be advocating for herself. Help should be turning up. As a society, we're not ready yet, but with what your friend's saying, I find that type of discussion so exciting because that's the solution. Help is turning up and people haven't even asked. I mean, can you imagine how rich the fabric of society would be if, if, We'd grown up with that and our grandparents had grown up with that and everyone just kind of just you know, came together without much fanfare around the newborn child and, and celebrating this you know, new being. We're miles away from that, but I think it's gen intergenerational thing. So hopefully for our kids, it's going to be easier for them when they come into the space of having children. And then for their kids, it's just going to be amazing, super supported, government funded, and you know they'll be wondering how... How we ever manage to parent alone <laughs> in a nuclear or subnuclear family. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Another thing that I also thought about in that postnatal period is I mean, I'm working with two incredible midwives and they come to my house for six weeks. You can get some chiropractors. If you need chiropractic work, they can come to your house. Osteopaths, they can come to your house, acupuncture, massage, you know, just Set yourself up, make a list of your postnatal plan that you are going to put into place. Chat to your partner, chat to your family, your friends, and just set yourself up for success. I feel like if everyone did that, they would have a very different postnatal trimester four experience. But apart from setting ourselves up for success in that period, what are some other things, maybe supplement wise or nutritionally? that we can do during pregnancy to prevent this depletion?
1: There are two main things I look at. One is kind of supplementation and the other is nervous system. So we'll talk about each of those separately. Supplementation, almost all of the antenatal supplements out there are all for the baby. So there's folic acid to prevent spina bifida, there's iodine to prevent cretinism in, in the baby. know, Great, all for the baby. And everything is a one-way street when it comes to the mother and the baby, apart from vitamin D, which is an even 50-50 share between the baby and the mother. I don't know why that is. Everything else, preferentially for the – the baby usually doesn't suffer. It's the mother that is kind of like a limitless credit card, if you like. And so if we know that, what are some of the critical things that we can be just topping up so the credit card doesn't get too much into debt – and can be easily paid off postnatally, if, or if at all. So, you know, for me, the number one supplement is around iron. I'm really amazed that even a lot of professionals are very, and this includes obstetricians and people in in the birth space, are very casual about iron levels. As long as you're not anaemic you're okay. But the research is very clear. The better your iron, the better the neurodevelopment of the child is during that pregnancy. The better your iron, the less blood loss you'll have at the birthing process. So both really big ticket items. And so and it's a really easy thing to measure. It's a really easy thing to sort of supplement. And there are lots of options. You just need to be working with someone that cares enough to kind of or isn't that rushed like a lot of specialists are to, to sort of look deep enough so iron's super important I think fish oil or algae oil they're the only two oils that I really I always always recommend and interestingly fish don't make the omega-3s that I'm talking about these long-chained omega-3s they just eat things that eat the algae, algae are kind of the factory so they're essentially the same oil they're not there's not really any difference in the types of omega-3s it's just a different source and i think it's really worthwhile to be supplementing with especially the the dha omega-3 during pregnancy and i think minerals can be useful you know there are some secondary kind of things but those two are are the really important there's more and more research coming out about choline which is it's a really interesting substance it's part amino acid part fat part carbohydrate but it's just it's very commonly found in a lot of foods. There are just some mothers that need higher amounts of choline. We're now starting to see choline in unfortunately too little amounts, but within some of the antenatal sort the of supplements. But the research is showing that it can help reduce placental inflammation and almost all of the problems of pregnancy whether you're looking at preeclampsia hypertension help syndrome small for date babies, premature delivery those kind of things have inflammation of the placenta as as part of the the genesis and the and the continuation of of those disorders now the research is suggested that it's very helpful so again this is going to take a long time and a lot of money to really understand this more deeply but Again, it's a really cheap supplement, no side effects with it. And so I'm I'm using choline more and more up front as a supplement. Uh, And then I think it's just good to really be checking in with things like magnesium, calcium, vitamin B12, vitamin D. And I think it's really important to have those uh, optimal. I can spend hours talking about supplements, but they're, they're kind of my key ones. And then when we're looking at the nervous system practices. So it's amazing how many people don't know how to relax and when you've got a six-month-old and you haven't slept in months and it's three o'clock in the morning and they're just not sleeping that's not the time to start learning how to relax because you know, you're going to be almost going out of your mind at that stage of things and so and there's more and more research showing that these nervous system practices really enable some flexibility of the stress response system most people know about the fight or flight freeze mechanism the autonomic nervous system the central adrenergic system all these kind of stress response systems that we have so if you've had all these upgrades you're in this kind of new territory and you suddenly care more about this helpless little being than you care about yourself and then you have stress that you're not managing effect of that stress can really multiply so if you don't have tools to kind of through breath work or gratitude practices or through meditation or physical therapies that can really kind of help recalibrate your nervous system it's going to make it a lot harder to turn things around if you're struggling so I, i really encourage my mothers to look at it's not a cookie cutter approach some some people meditations the worst thing that they can do. It really frustrates them, those kind of things. Other people guided meditations actually really good. Some people it's a walking meditation or being in nature. Other people, it might be a gratitude practice, is really fantastic. Other people, it might be a creative pursuit, or the research is quite clear. There needs to be a sense of stillness with that practice. It shouldn't be goal-oriented. So it's not like you're trying to you know, go for a run and beat your best time. So it's not it's not goal-oriented like that. And Ideally, a little bit of novelty, but doesn't doesn't need to be too much there. And there needs to be something called paced respiration. The paced respiration is where you just have a slow in breath and ideally a slower out breath. And you know the research that's just come out in the last few years about how that can help modulate the stress response is is profound. Now, there's not that much research specifically during pregnancy or in mothers, but I think the same applies really. And it's it's it's. It's a great thing to have as in your toolbox. I think it's great for your kids as they're growing up to see parents having them managing their nervous systems. And what I say to mothers is, you need to learn to manage your nervous system, or otherwise your nervous system will manage you. And I really love hearing different things that people are doing. You now, what I've said is is not an exhaustive list by any means. It's just a. Just some entry level kind of things, and there may be things that people have done in the past that they just have dropped and not doing now. There may be things that people have thought about doing that they could be sort of introducing, and, and ideally should be fun. It shouldn't just be a chore. The other thing I talk about is we have a dental health practice called brushing our teeth. We all do it. If we if we don't do it, it feels odd, and we somehow manage to find time for it. So I'm really fascinated about how that's become such a universal thing. We need – that's a dental health practice. We need a mental health practice that's maybe probably a little bit longer than brushing your teeth, but it's a little bit similar. We kind of do it. We don't think about it too much. We've got our routine, and we're looking at our long-term mental health as brushing your teeth, looking at your long-term dental health. I even sometimes get mothers to tie things to their toothbrushes or just a little reminder of going okay, we'll just – Breathe in four four times, breathe out four times, then brush your teeth. You know, so at least you're getting 20 seconds of nervous system practice with the brushing of your teeth, and that's happening you know, twice a day. And even my most forgetful mothers, most of them are still br- brushing their teeth. So I'm interested just in in the parallel there. It's also like, well, yeah, th- these are things that are just so important. I mean, You may have some ideas or suggestions or things that you you do specifically, that you talk about with your listeners, but I think it's such a great discussion.
0: Oh, yeah. It's so important. I mean, for me, I meditate twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. My meditation teacher actually said, during pregnancy, you can up that. Do as much as you want. And then also postpartum, meditate as much as you want. Listen to hypnosis meditations, guided meditations. Just meditate, meditate, meditate. If you don't have a practice, now is a great time to pick up a practice. I have some beautiful guided meditations, some 10 minute guided meditations on my website, and I can link to those in the show notes as well. And they're infused with binaural beats and isochronic tones and self regio frequencies, which is just amazing because it helps you drop into that deep state of relaxation. So for me, definitely upping my meditation practice during my pregnancy, that's what I've done. And then also, my relaxation, so having a nap every day, whether that's in the afternoon or the other day I fell asleep at eleven o'clock in the morning and had an hour sleep and just don't even know where that came from, but usually it's in the afternoon, I'll just lay down on the couch and maybe I'll watch something for a couple of minutes and then I'm asleep for a little while. so just doing that and without the guilt, you know, I think before I was pregnant, I would have a little bit of the inner mean girl saying. Melissa, there's this, this, and this that you could be doing, but I have this beautiful excuse of being pregnant now to just relish in that relaxation time and spending lots of time in nature for me is just heaven. I live on the beach. So going down and laying on the beach and having a swim every single day for me is just pure medicine. And then also getting into bed at 7.30. That's when I get into bed. I get into bed at 7.30 and I read and then I'm asleep. And for me, it's just what works. I love it. I don't need to stay up binge watching Netflix until 11 p.m. It just doesn't light me up. I'd rather get into bed early and read a really good book and go to sleep.
1: Yeah, and I think prioritizing sleep is essential you know, i've got a one year kind of mantra for postnatal that you have to prioritize sleep and and that's a great nervous system practice i kind of bypass that but that if you're not sleeping well you can't supplement your way past that now the average mother loses 700 hours of sleep in the first year you have to kind of prepare for that and just make sure you're getting enough sleep and then micro napping and if you're extremely exhausted then have you know, a nap and not ideally feel guilty about that. I mean, mothers really need to have permission to go, this is this is medicine. It's not a luxury or an extravagance. This is actually, uh, and, and the other thing I often talk about is hammock times. And not literally being in a hammock, but I see so many mothers when they're in their hammock time, they're not switching off. They're not getting into relaxation. And they still kind of have that job list going. They might literally still be on the phone just going, well, just, just, know organising playdates and making sure that kind of things are happening. And so I think that's part of the 21st century challenge is this 24-7 nature of society is new. It affects mothers, I think, more than everyone else because of these upgrades that I've sort of talked about and not wanting to disappoint and wanting just to, you know, you know I think we need to have a real cultural discussion and narrative around it. it's okay not to get back to people for a text or an email for a while. It's okay to be offline for extended periods and for that to be kind of celebrated in some ways and and then when we're in the hammock and we actually know yes this is i'm actually relaxing what i love about the guided meditations that you're talking about is you're getting the most out of that 10 minutes with the binaural beats and those kind of things and so it's you know it's a real invitation to relaxation and i think that's that's the important thing is that we just don't have enough of those We're just so busy, 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 and then it's like, oh my god, I need, I need some me time. And then you're gobbling up that precious, potential time for sleep, trying to recalibrate our nervous system just from being smashed during the day. Where we, I mean, ideally could be managed otherwise. Where you don't need that time. In our house, we used to call it uh, eight o'clock, late o'clock. This is a kind of reminder going. We're up after eight. That's after late. So it's just, what are we still doing up? You know, it needs to be a good reason, not just, I'm just doodling or I'm just, and everything can wait as well. You know, all, all the chores.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Eight o'clock, eight o'clock. And I think, yeah, you made a really good point when we are in the hammock time or having that hammock time, you know, scrolling social media might not be the most conducive thing to reducing stress. So I do lots of times when I'm having my hammock time on the couch in the afternoon, I make sure my phone's on airplane mode and it's in a cupboard away from me. If it's next to me on the couch, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick it up. But if it's all the way in the other room in a cupboard, I won't think about it, you know? So set yourself up for success and create pockets in your days, whether that's 10 minutes or five minutes where you can take a few deep belly breaths you can do this while you're driving as well you can do this whilst you're standing at the post office or the bank or sitting at the traffic lights or standing at the grocery store like there's so many opportunities where you can just feel both of your feet grounded into the earth and take these really deep slow mindful juicy breaths that are going to just regulate your nervous system and bring you out of that fight or flight
1: yeah, and I think those are very nourishing. We call them cue points at the clinic here. Yeah. So a cue point is where it's just like I said an invitation to relaxation and those moments of physical stillness, sitting on the toilet in a queue, traffic lights, they're they're great. You know, tying something to your toothbrush, you know, things that are just reminders to go, okay, okay, I'll just and it is so nourishing to the nervous system. It's just like you know, putting coins into the piggy bank, you know, they they will really mount up in terms of their benefit.
0: Absolutely. Let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your book, which I think every single human being needs to read, both male and female, what is one book that you would choose to put in the school curriculum? There's
1: probably a few. I mean, the one that I'm I've read and I'm rereading at the moment is When God Was a Woman by Merlin Stone, written in the 1970s. It's probably not the most easy book to read because, you know, there's a lot of information and small print and and what have you, but the message there is profound. And and there are probably other books that also sort of touch on this. And it's essentially about how we've gone from being a matrilineal society all over the world to a patriarchal society and how that happened. And and this book was written in the 70s. I mean, it's profound in terms of how this woman put this information together. I mean, the research since the 1970s with ancient DNA and new fossil finds and those kind of things has really borne out the fact that, you know, we have come from these matricentric, matrilineal societies where there wasn't any warfare and there was – this Aboriginal idea of continuism where you just use the resources that you have and you don't overuse. And then you know, there's quite a specific series of events that happened that the patriarchy sort of started about from about 4200 BC and then slowly things through Europe and India and then around the world really sort of started to change. And then we see weapons, then we see you know, some people having bigger graves and other graves, so kind of unequal distribution of resources you know we we see the you know, the birth of the kings and the and the dominator society so i mean yeah, there's another great book called chalice and the blade which you know talks a lot about this as well and that's maybe a little bit more readable i think but just i mean yeah so the message would be that we haven't always been patriarchal in fact it's a relatively recent thing and you know in my office here at work and I've got the goddess timeline going back about thirty thousand years, just looking at the history of all the goddess effigies through different cultures at at different times. And it's just a kind of reminder going, well, you know, we're just we're society in evolution. And COVID's a fantastic example of how we're just evolving, or hopefully we're evolving at the moment and really having to take on challenges. Climate change is another thing that is really going to force us to evolve in a healthier way we we sort of have to and who better than mothers to lead the charge really in terms of using resources well caring about others more than you care about yourselves and and all those principles of these matrilineal societies where some people didn't own more than other people it was all just and even though we're not going to go back to those cultures and I'm not sort of uh, all that way of living it's more around the principles that we just need more of those in our society, and, and then I and then I think the agents of change have been born today. So I'm you know, I'm really fascinated with mothers who are pregnant at the moment, like yourself, that, that these children they're they're going to be incredible. You know, they're really going to change the world in a very positive way. You know, and unlike us who were very hindered by our parents' generation for, to enable change, we're not going to get in the way and really enable large scale changes and you know, really getting back to humanity which is, which i think what when you look talking about wellness or mother care or or around environmental well-being that's all about understanding and, and really promoting humanity because we're quite off the map at the moment in terms of capitalism and, and, and a lot of these kind of things and resource use so you know i think a lot of people have a lot of fear out there i think yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of very heavy stuff out there, but I think there's also a huge time of opportunity. I feel very excited about the future. Things are going to change much more quickly than we kind of realise. You know, there are there is going to be, may not feel so good for a while, but it's all just heading in the right direction of just becoming more egalitarian, more focusing on this idea of continuism. And, and I, I think, subconsciously honouring the great mother, which is uh, what it's about. We're not we're doing a very good job of that at the moment, so we need to get back on track.
0: Mm, I agree with you with the children that are coming through now. are whew, They are light workers. They are light beams. They are going to change the planet. When you said that, I got full body goosebumps and so emotional. It's just, I feel it, I know it in my bones and I'm so excited for that generation because they're going to be real game changers. And those books sound amazing. I'll link to those in the show notes as well as your book. And your book is just amazing. Honestly, everyone needs to read it. It's incredible. So I'll pop those in the show notes. And now I would love to turn the spotlight on you a little bit more. And I want to hear about your success rituals and routines. Do you have a morning routine? How do you set yourself up for a successful day? Do you meditate? What do you eat? Talk us through some of the rituals and routines that you do in a typical day.
1: Yeah, my routine varies. So uh, I'll talk about kind of what my ideal routine is, but certainly in a month like December, pre-Christmas, I'm like anyone that uh, I'll, I'll let things slide for a while, but I'm always just coming back to things. So. You know, my favorite way to sort of start the morning is is with a, something called a puja, which is about 15 minutes of mantras. And I often do that with, with my partner, Caroline. And it's just, it's a really beautiful way just to kind of align the day. And then if I have time, I'll go for a short walk or do a short breath practice and yoga practice and then you know, I often work quite long days at work and so when I'm at work and I've got a standing desk it's it's really important for me to my, my desk is going up and down all day but it's just it's really important for me not to be sitting all day. I've got a full spectrum light in my office so that really just kind of makes sure that I'm kind of getting the brain signal about daytime. I think light's really important in terms of our overall well-being and then avoiding kind of avoid sort of junky blue light in the evenings. I often wear my my orange goggles or red goggles at nighttime uh, just to sort of help with that. Diet-wise, I've been doing sort of ketogenic diet for about eight years, but I'm not as hardcore as some people will be, and I'm lucky now. And what's interesting with, because I've been doing it for a long time, I've got metabolic flexibility that I didn't have in those first couple of years. And I really like the idea of the keto lifestyles. It's not just about the ketogenic diet, but the keto lifestyle it is about doing the right type of exercise and activity, sleeping the right amount of hours for your body type and then also that. So it's very hard to do a ketogenic diet if you're not getting enough sleep. So it's, it's, it doesn't – but, you know, that serves my sort of body type really well. And I do a few rituals at work. So in between each client I've got a – a bowl that I'll just kind of ding in between each client just to kind of kind of help reset and just kind of go, okay, I can just you no, know, I've I've helped serve that client. I really need something to be present for the next client. Because it's it's very, very easy to kind of just get wrapped up and, and revert back to Dr. Gear and just kind of just you know thrash through the workload as it were. And it's I think especially with this type of work, it's important not to just to kind of really be present listening and then not having too much of an agenda in terms of what advice you're giving and, and, and it's just making sure that's really clean and appropriate. So I probably don't do as much exercise as, I, as I'd like to, but I've been coaching soccer this year with my kids and so you know, there's a lot of running around sort of doing that. I love going down to to the park with the kids and just you know, playing. I mean, it's something that has been one of the gifts for me of, of parenthood is is mixing Exercise and activity with playing. And who better than a kid to teach you how to do that? And so I'm always looking at, for opportunities to do that. And and then my real recalibration digital detox is I love fishing with the kids. It's, it's interesting that COVID has been a, re- a relatively new thing in my life with COVID. We couldn't do very much. So we just decided we'd go out. And, and, and there's something really meditative about being in the space out in nature. And I'm really happy not to catch anything most days. So it's more just, again, just that that nature time. And camping, I find a really good way to kind of reset as well with the kids, go to a place where there isn't even any mobile signal and just kind of forget yourself or maybe get closer to yourself whilst you're kind of out there. And Australia's we're very lucky like that. There's just amazing camping everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just got back from three days of camping with zero phone reception. And it was absolute bliss. It's my favorite place to go because there's no phone reception and we just love it. I actually was chatting to a friend who I'm in a mastermind group with a few days after I got back and she said to me, oh my gosh, the thought of being off for three days gives me heart palpitations. And I was like, that's exactly why you need to do it. And she was laughing and she said, I know, I know I need to do it. I just, wow. And for me, it's just so beautiful. So I love that, and yeah, camping and getting connected with nature is just so beautiful. So that sounds lovely.
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about camp it doesn't have to be camping necessarily, but you, know, you would have just experienced this recently is that you, uh, in, in our day to day living, we're at we're on like a different time clock. We're at someone else's rhythm. We're at kind of the Monday to Friday, nine to five, and we're just, and that's not. Natural human biological rhythms. You know, that's kind of system-induced rhythms. And when you go camping or out in nature or hiking or those kind of things, you know, your rhythms are about the sun going up and the sun going down and about being hungry, you know. And, and so you you really get to listen to your own rhythms much more. And I think that's what I – and then you get to do the activities and being out in nature. But I think it's just that change of gear and much more into a truer rhythm for yourself than in this kind of artificial – urban rhythm, if you like, which doesn't really suit anybody, but it's a product of this go go get them kind of society.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So true. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Sure. Go. Yep. Okay. What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Be aware and really name what your nervous system practices are.
0: Love it. Beautiful. What's one of the most important things that we can do today for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life.
1: Be okay to surrender. Mm,
0: Yes, such a goodie. I think we can all do with a little bit more surrender. Yeah. And the final one, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for more love in our life?
1: I think understanding your own rhythms. I've been really fascinated by this idea of biorhythms recently. And I think if you want to experience more love, you know, you need to have your autonomic – nerve. you need to be more parasympathetic. So that's part of the autonomic nervous system. That's the rest and digest part of that. It's very hard to get into a – and when you look at love, love is really around just connecting with other humans and it's about connecting with ourselves. And so I think if we're kind of too stressed, we, it's really – going against the grain to then to try to get into a more loving space. And you have to be in, t- in that space to then uh, both experience love and give love and, and, and receive love. So yeah, I don't know if that quite answered the question, but it's just around just really honouring the parasympathetic system because that is the foundation for where love comes from, I suppose.
0: Oscar, this has been so incredible so far. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? Well, no, I, th- I
1: think we covered some really great topics and I think we had a fantastic conversation and you know I think we're both very aligned in the fact that individual and societal wellness is really important supporting mothers is really important and yeah, and I, I think we sort of we 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 covered covered a lot of really fantastic topics and a lot of things I didn't think we we're going to be talking about either. So I
0: love that. Awesome. The work that you do with your books, your practice, everything that you do helps so many people. You are serving so many people all over the world. So I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you today?
1: Well, just follow my work because I'm really in a state of evolution at the moment. I mean, 2020, I think, has been a time of surrender, a time of reevaluating. and I've just recently committed to only doing postnatal work. I was sort of a, more of a generalist with a postnatal bent previously, and I really want to you know, be able to serve both mothers and mother care workers in terms of information and research and support. And so just to sort of, you know, just follow me on, on my sort of various channels, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, the Mother Care Project is something that I'm slowly giving a lot more energy and time to. So, you know, definitely track that handle because that's essentially where I want to be going in, in, with mother care. That's what it's about for me sort of both prof- you know, professionally and, and personally. And just to talk to other mothers, I mean, that that's, I think, the story that you said about your friend is the most beautiful way that I, I've I've I, I can imagine that you know, someone can really serve my work is to to be enacting it in terms of helping again you know, support mothers with non-judgment and deep support because that's a solution. And the solution is not about medicalizing these kind of things. I, I will leave you with one thing. I'm not I'm amazed at how many people aren't aware of this. So and it's just a really cool Fact. Now, the first ever approved drug for postpartum depression came out in America last year. So, every other drug has been used off label in Australia. We don't have this particular medication yet. It's very expensive, it has to be given as an infusion. But the fascinating thing about this is it's not an antidepressant. It's not an anti anxiety drug. It's actually a placental hormone. That the drug industry has kind of tweaked so they can patent it and then they give it as an infusion and it essentially goes into that tiny part of the brain called the PVN and switches off neuroinflammation. In inflammation. And so and mothers don't need sort of medication afterwards and after they've had an infusion, it's really quite profound. I'm sure the medical industry is going to try to use and abuse it as they do with a lot of things, But for those mothers who are really suffering, it's quite profound. But what I wanted to share about that is it's the first time in psychiatry that you've got a cure essentially for a psychiatric condition and the first time that you've got a hormone that's frontline management for a psychiatric condition. And so I just find that sort of fascinating. And this probably wouldn't work in maidens or men who had similar kind of symptoms. So it's, again, just showing the uniqueness of what's going on and the fact that it can be really well managed or potentially switched off if those mothers who are having you know, severe depression and anxiety, again, it's not available in Australia, so it's not even a, a point of discussion. I think it's about $34,000 US per treatment in, in the United States. But for those mothers who are suffering beyond belief, you know, that's money well spent any day of the week. So, But it, it's, yeah, it, it's, I think, a very neat thing. It's also just going, wow, this only came out last year, 2019, And it's just also showing the evolving science and understanding of the uniqueness of mothers. So that's kind of probably be my parting idea is that mothers are not men, obviously, and they're not maidens. And this idea of matrescence, the becoming of a mother, maiden to mother, it's like adolescence, you know, from child to adult. Adult doesn't seriously try to go back to being a child once they've been through adolescence. And the mother shouldn't really try to go back to being her maiden self after she's been through matrescence, which is you know, the pregnancy and, the, and that postnatal time, I mean, she must nurture her inner maiden as an adult nurtures her in a child. That's very important. But it's the the actual logistics of go oh, go back to my maiden way of eating, my maiden way of exercise and friendships and going out and you know that can be very disruptive rather than just kind of really embracing the transformation into motherhood and and it, it just being. New, fresh, and yeah, it can be very exciting. So I'm really wishing you the best for your journey. I'm really keen to hear progress, and uh, I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people by sharing your wisdom and yeah, and your experiences.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so glad you brought up matrescence. I will talk about it more and more on the podcast now that it's something that I'm personally going to be experiencing. But you're right; it's exactly the same as adolescence, that teenager to adult. No adult ever thinks, oh, I got to get back there. It just makes so much sense. But so many women think, oh, I want to get back to my maiden self. And it just, think about it like the teenager to the adult. It just doesn't, we're meant to evolve and we're meant to grow. And it's a rite of passage and it's a transition. And there's so much growth and evolution. And it's a beautiful thing that we get to experience. So we have to embrace it. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And my last question for you is, are you taking on clients? Do you take on clients physically, obviously, but do you do virtually? How can people work with you if they want to work with you?
1: Yeah, so you know, typically with my postnatal clients, you know, I'm not seeing them for years. It's often quite a short six to twelve months, depending on what's going on. And and so I, I work in a environment bay in a clinic called the the Health Lodge. And before COVID, probably about 60% of what I was doing was online, virtual anyway. And now it's you know, a much, you know, maybe 80 80 to 90% online. And so you know, people can check us out at, at the website. I definitely do see mothers face-to-face as well. And this year I've decided I'm only going to see mothers just to make more space. It's been a, an interesting decision because I can't come from a sort of generalist sort of background, but I just really have to make sure that I'm seeing as many mothers as I can and I'm really wanting to get into helping teach mother care workers around this and that's what the Mother Care project's about, supporting mothers and supporting mother care workers. But definitely watch that space, lots of exciting things coming.
0: Oh, I can't wait. You're amazing. Thank you so much for supporting us and for doing the work that you do. You are an angel and we're so grateful for everything that you share. So thank you so much for being here, thank you for all the wisdom that you shared today and. I can't wait to watch your evolution and what's next for you as well. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you, Melissa. It's been a, a fantastic conversation today. And I really love the work that you do and just helping support awareness because without awareness, you know, it's very hard to get momentum on anything really.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for being here. I absolutely loved today's conversation so much and I got so much out of it. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome because you get... Some special goodies. And speaking of review of the week, this week it's a five star review titled Big Sister Life Wisdom from Soph. And Soph says Melissa's books and podcasts are changing my life. I can never thank her enough. I have read her three books multiple times and listened to her podcast daily. She's like a big sister I never had. The true guidance and awareness I need to remain in my true enlightenment. Every time I read or listen to Melissa, I pick up something new and try implementing it with my day-to-day tasks, my children, and my partner. It also allows me to try integrating it all again if I've fallen off my path. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing your light with us. And I'm so excited for your fourth book, which is out May 5th, 2021 and for your beautiful angel to be earthside in your arms. Oh my goodness, if I am so grateful for that beautiful review. That was so divine. It's made me a little bit emotional. Thank you so much. And I want to gift you one of my top four favorite products, which is some goodies from The Wild Olive. So all you've got to do is email Hello at melissaambrosini.com with your address, and we'll post those wild olive goodies to you as a big thank you for taking the time to leave such a gorgeous review. I'm so, so grateful. Now, don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at melissaambrosini and tell me your top three key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. And please share this with all of your friends. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at Melissarambrissini.com forward slash three eight one. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of right now, whether they're a mama or maybe one day they want to be a mama or any female or actually any male, every single human being will benefit from hearing this episode. So please share it with them. Share it on your Instagram. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media. You can email it to them, text it to them. Just do whatever you've got to do to share it and get this in their ears because it's such powerful information, knowledge, and wisdom that we all need. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy. Healthy is liberating and wealthy isn't a dirty word.